This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2107, Counselor, It's Chinatown, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room. I am your host, Anthony Roman. This is episode 2107, Counselor, It's Chinatown. And on the program is the newest member of our illustrious cast, Jamie Gray Hyder. And we get into how they conceived her character of Kat Tamin and all the things that have happened since she joined the squad. After that, legendary comedian and this episode's guest star, the one and only Margaret Cho and her dog stop in and give us a lowdown on her portrayal of Mama-san. And finally, Kathy Doby and Lisa Takeuchi Cullen discuss co-writing this episode and the importance of authenticity. All this is happening right here on The Squad Room, which is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. Jamie Gray Hyder, welcome to the squad room. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I wanted to get a little background on you as to what you were doing before SVU, that life before SVU. I can't even remember life before <laughs> SVU now. Um, I was working on a lot of different TV shows as a guest star here and there. And prior to that, I had actually worked on Call of Duty, the video game, which was a lot of fun. Um, and much like this job, that sort of had a a social impact component where I got to work closely with the military and with veterans. Um, so kind of moving into SVU, I get excited because there's also kind of a social impact component here. Um, and that's really exciting for me. How did you come to Warren's attention and the show's attention? I had auditioned for um, Jonathan Strauss, who casts most of Dick Wolf's projects. Um, I have auditioned for him for years and we've got a great relationship. And when this role came up, they contacted me in L.A. and I put together a tape for it and sent in my tape. And, you know, you kind of have to put everything into it until the moment it's done and then you have to kind of forget about it right. and move on to the next thing. And so I kind of done that when I got a phone call saying, we're still considering you for this role. You know, is Jamie available? Is she interested? And I was so ecstatic to hear I was even in the running. And when I got confirmation that I would actually be joining the show initially, um, I, I couldn't believe it. I was so excited. When you knew you were being considered, was there a ton of research to do? Did you have to, did you watch a lot of SVU or were you familiar enough with the show? I was pretty familiar with the show um, prior to. I did do a little bit of research sort of regarding the way that the various divisions of the NYPD and the DA's office and kind of the relationship between all those different entities in New York because I wanted to sort of understand what would have been my background coming in and what sort of is the background of the division that I'd be going into and how do all these entities work together. So I was recommended um, to read Bonfire of the Vanities, which kind of is, has got a very interesting you know, depiction of the mechanics behind the NYPD and the DA's office. And in this case, now we're adding in sort of the extra aspect of this being SVU. Um, so for me, it was sort of just kind of understanding all of those dynamics and really understanding sort of what Kat's experiences would have been up until that moment. And the backstory of growing up in Gowanus Projects, how has that come together? When do you guys start talking about that? When we get into Murdered at a Bad Address is sort of when I go back to the projects and really have an opportunity to identify with this young girl who gets assaulted there. 
And she's very familiar with the fact that these types of assaults and these types of crimes don't typically get as much weight as something that might have happened on Fifth Avenue. So she's got an extra fire, I think, inside her to really bring justice to a group of people who maybe are overlooked more often than not. Which is basically the theme of last week's episode. Yes. Yeah. Is it hard to come in and and work with people who've been doing this for 50 years or 40 years? Or do you think about that at all? Certainly. And, and, you know, I think it really informed me as to my character as well. As Jamie, I was walking into a group of people who've been working together in some cases for two decades and into a group of people who have set up expectations for an entire fan base that I need to now try and seamlessly sort of find my place in. Um, and so much like Cat coming into a squad room where these people have been working together for years you know, it's kind of feeling it out and, and, and being friendly and warm and welcoming, but not overstepping and, and trying to find that balance. And for me, you know, a lot of that is observation. You know, how do things work? How do people carry themselves? And to find that people were so light and so excited to be here, despite sort of the dark subject matter, I think all of that contributed to making it an easy transition. Both Warren and Julie have told me that it's important to have you on the show because they're able to bring a younger person's views point to particularly an episode like episode four, The Burden of Our Choices. One, there's a bit of a responsibility for you. Um, and two, I think it's really important that your voice is heard. Like the show has that voice. And I wanted to know if they told you about that or are you just getting your scripts and you know what's... No, they definitely stressed for me that I have the opportunity to sort of speak for a group of people that maybe aren't being represented currently on the show. And it really allows people of, of my age, especially to relate to the things that we're dealing with. And, and I know it's been especially important for Warren and Julie to be dealing with current issues. And with that said, you know, I think it's important to have a wide range of voices on this type of subject matter. So in the burden of our choices, you know, she's very much speaking to a younger voice that's trying to fight for individual rights, especially regarding reproduction and women and trying to fight to make sure that everybody's being properly represented and given the rights they deserve. And for Kat, it becomes difficult, I think, to balance what might be her personal beliefs with what actually is something that you can impose by law, you know? And so for her, I think that's part of it. You know, I think the characters who've been here for a while have come up with their own balance and have a kind of a more of a defined boundary between work and personal. And I think Kat is still sort of exploring that. And in episode four, you have a run-in with Carisi about that. And also in the episode, you, you're, I guess, eager to do a good job. And maybe you make a few mistakes with Evangeline in that case. Do you want to talk about that? Is that there's a little, probably art and life are, are similar there, right? They Not are. in the mistake making, but no, the, the new. But- as far as being new and eager, for yeah. sure, you know, she wants to perform. She wants to solve these cases. She wants to show them that she knows what she's doing. But this is still all very new for her. So she definitely needs to learn how to better control her instincts, maybe, and her impulses. You know, she sees a young person who's been victimized and, and been, you know, physically attacked by somebody else. And what she wants to do is protect them and defend them with every fiber in her being. And... Sometimes you have to edit that in order to stay within the realm of your job. And you kind of see her have a little bit of a self-control issue, especially when faced with the person who assaulted this young girl. And upon, you know, kind of being face-to-face with him, you see her her heart kind of overtake her head a little bit. And, and, and again, I think that's sort of going to be her line to sort of 
walk. And do you think we'll see you butt heads with Carisi and Rollins and throughout? I think so. You know, I think they all are used to running a certain path and they've all been on the same path together and throwing a new opinion in the mix and a new type of worker and just a new person in general requires adjustments for everyone, not just myself, you know, not, not just Kat. Um, and so I think it's kind of interesting to watch these established characters kind of have to move around someone new because they're having to adapt as well. So Ice-T was telling me that you guys are clicking though because you have a hip hop history. So I do. <laughs> I, I, my first job um, in when I moved to Los Angeles was at Record Plant Recording Studios. And so we had mostly hip hop clients at the time. And I worked there for over four years as my side job. And I was there sort of as concierge. So I put out snacks or brought people their food, took orders, hung out, just tried to make sure everybody was had a positive environment in which to do their work. And so Ice and I have bonded over that a lot because we kind of have lived in the same world a little bit in different positions of that world, but definitely both witnessed a lot of the same stuff. So I love hearing his stories and, and I love being able to chime in with my own opinion as well. That's great. That's great. Yes, you mentioned that on the squad room. Can you talk about how your Lebanese background may play into the role of Kat? When I got the role, you know, Warren and I kind of discussed my personal background. And for him, it's important to really pull from reality and make these characters as realistic and grounded as possible. And with that said, he, you know, decided to make my heritage my character's heritage, which doesn't happen very often, especially as a Middle Eastern woman. You know, I play Latina a lot. Um, I play different sort of mixed races and things. But this is the first time when on a television show, I actually get to play my own heritage. So... Kat, you know, grew up in a Middle Eastern family, which I think, at least in my experience as Jamie, really instilled a, a great work ethic. Um, you know, my father is Lebanese, and, you know, I walked, watched him work hard his entire life and have passion for his job and what he does. And I think that really is reflected in Kat, and that's something I kind of wanted her fictional family to have instilled in her as well. And to really be determined and headstrong, all of those kind of go along with at least my personal Middle Eastern upbringing. And I think it also, as a character, my parents were both born in the United States, but Kat's parents, for instance, you know, immigrated here. And the idea being that she's of an, you know, a family that is the product of immigration and, and a productive and wonderful member of society is a message that I'm really happy to be putting out there. And I think it also allows Kat to relate to a lot of the victims and people from different backgrounds because she herself is of a diverse background. So talking about Concerts Chinatown, you go through a harrowing experience with Lily's suicide, which takes place under your care. Is this new territory for you coming from Vice, or is it just new within SVU? I think that what Kat experienced as a Vice officer would be new and extreme territory for anyone outside of law enforcement. And so I think that she did come in with a little bit of thick skin, but this really was probably one of the most jarring things that's ever happened to her in her entire life especially with her goal being the pursuit of justice for, for victims and survivors, you know, to get so close with somebody and to have them opt to take their life as opposed to being able to go through the judicial process because of threats and things like that happening to their families, you know, it does exist, but I don't think Kat has ever experienced that in such extremes before. And I think she really took ownership over wanting to bring justice to this young woman and to be so close, to be in the courthouse, to be about to walk into court and have this happen, you know, it really takes a toll on her. 
And because so many of the victims that we deal with in SVU are females, it really brings out, I think, a certain empathetic quality in Kat and getting to deal with these people on such close terms becomes really heavy after a while. And she thinks she's seen it all in Vice, but after three, four, five cases in SVU, you realize sometimes the world can be even darker than you think. And for her, it's gonna be something to deal with, to figure out how on her own she can kind of survive having to be exposed to all of these cases and all these really heinous things that are happening to the people in our show. Is there anything that happened in episode seven that was fun behind the scenes or did you have fun with Margaret Cho or was there? I, when I was, I guess, nine years old, used to watch All American Girl, which was her TV show back in the 90s and I was obsessed with it. So she walked on set. I think it's the first person I've asked to take a picture with. And I was like, can we take a picture together? And, you know, I had a great time meeting her. Probably one of the funnier parts about the episode is that Kat speaks Chinese. You know, they give my character so many talents and skills that I then have to figure out how to acquire. Right. So learning Chinese, getting to work with Chinese speakers and make sure I was getting it right. And, and you know, getting to work with Christine, who is one of the guest stars on that particular episode. And I would be running my lines with her three seconds before they'd say action and then say it for real. And that part was really fun, kind of getting to mess around, learning a little bit of Chinese and playing with that intonation a little bit. Um, and me, as Jamie, I really love learning new languages. So that was a really fun challenge. Is that the episode that the writers discovered that Warren can speak Mandarin? Was it, was <laughs> yes. That, yes, because I never knew that. I've, yeah. known, I've known Warren a very long time. Yep. So Jamie Greyhutter, thank you so much for coming on the squad room today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me anytime. Margaret Show continues the SVU tradition of incredible comedic actors coming in and playing against type. It was great to have the opportunity to talk with her about how she prepared to play Mama-san. So we're on the squad room with Margaret Cho. You are in episode seven, Counselor, It's Chinatown. Yes. And you come from, there's a long list of celebrity guest stars on yes. SVU. So many great ones. And so I think my favorite is probably Robin Williams. I love it when he played a baddie, especially here and then also in a one-hour photo. I know, he's creepy in that movie. Yeah, and Insomnia. Yeah. That there's a few times it's pretty rare. People don't really think about it. But I notice on the show when they play against type, it's really effective. Right. You know, like whether it's Martin Short or even Cynthia Nixon, you know, just when, you know, you really show a range here, which so I think it's, to me as an LA actor, it's like, this is like real acting. It's <laughs> like New York acting. It's like the real deal. And so it's exciting to be a part of it. Warren Light was saying that he's had a lot of success with comedic actors coming mm -hmm. onto the show and doing exactly what you're talking about. And Ariel Winter was on um, a few episodes ago as well. As far as preparing, did you approach it differently? Or well, um, I did prepare. A lot of it too is, um, you know, I grew up within a Chinatown. Um, and so these kinds of figures are pretty familiar. So it's a combination of doing some research and also um, my own, you know, experience of, of knowing people like this. You've been pretty outspoken about subjects that I've dealt with on the show. Yes. And do you find that SVU handles it in a way that 
I know it's very difficult, but do you feel they take it seriously? Enough? Absolutely. And I think there's something about Olivia Benson that she's somebody who is, it's sort of like she exists in your subconscious as that the figure of strength and power. Oh, that's my dog. Sorry. <laughs> but she, um, she represents so much power and so much of what we want to happen. And that kind of avenging angel that's going to save you and understands and it's not going to let you down. And, and so I think that it's a really good, um, it's a cathartic thing to watch when you have had this kind of abuse in your life and so many people have dealt with it. And so this kind of a show is, is really important and it's really effective in bringing across like that sort of like the, the day will come when you are, you are, you are ven avenged. <laughs> Do you think that the Olivia Bensons are out there? They are out there. They're out there and, you know, they take many shapes and many forms. But what we can do is watch the show and have a really um, a satisfying experience, you know, like watching all of this happen through her. When you were reading the script, were you surprised by, you know, the, the, the suicide in the middle, like the tragedy that occurred? Like, did you? It is such a real thing and it is such a thing that, is um, I think it's dealt, dealt with really respectfully in a really important way that that this can this can happen and this does happen all the time and so it is a surprise in a sense but it's also not a surprise. That scene really upset me. I, I was I was shocked by mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And uh, what do you think your character's motivation is? And what because you mentioned the Robin Hood thing, but it is kind of a way to get a handle on. Um, finding a way to live out the American dream, which is really what it, it is all about. I mean, it's really her way to get control in a world where she has no control. Do you think people will view it without judgment? Do you think people will understand yeah. what you're... I mean, I think these kinds of characters exist in real life, of course, because it's like, if you know, especially for women and women in my family, our opportunities coming to America were very limited. And also what women are able to do in... Um, my family structure and an Asian family, it's, it's, we're definitely second-class citizens. And so when we can find a way to get over on uh, the system, to get over on uh, Americans, to get over on the patriarchy, it's really powerful. So it, it's insidious because it's like there's this desire to really break out and be free, and, and yet we are getting that power by enslaving other people. So it's a, it's a very tricky thing um, to try to, like, see, is this character sympathetic or is this, you know, she's not purely evil. She does care, but doesn't care that much because obviously the things that she did were not very, you know, not really thinking about what happened. But I do think that she is sorry for Lily's death. At the same time, she caused it. Right. And as an actor, how do you take on that complexity? I think it's really about looking into it as, as like you are um, doing this just because you need to get ahead and all of those decisions that you have to make to hurt others, really, they have to kind of get you get compartmentalize all of these things. I think that people who do these bad acts do compartmentalize and, and they put those things that they do that are like just really terrible and kind of like use that, like chalk that up to the cost of what's at stake. And so that there's gotta be a way to do it. I think that just playing it honestly and you know, watching the show, Every actor has approached even these really dark characters in a very honest and true way. So even though they can be like really evil and freaky and scary, they they definitely have this humanity running through it. So I really tried to follow the example of somebody like Martin Short or Carol Burnett, you know, and really try to get in there and um, 
do something that I haven't done. To accomplish what you're trying to do, did you have to make any changes or do you talk to the director about, like, did, was your approach maybe different than theirs? Or No, you know, uh, Leslie Hope directed this episode and she was so generous and she gave me a lot of material to get into about um, the background of this woman. And for me, like, it's a very geeky approach and wanting to, like, know everything about the person. And so that, that was really helpful. We definitely worked uh, together on it. Have you worked with Leslie before? No, I never have. But she is an actor, too, so she understands all of those things and all that's necessary in capturing a, a moment and capturing that character. Having gone through what you've gone through and you've talked about it, do you feel a responsibility to talk about it? Do you feel that people need to go there, or do you, or do you feel like it's not your responsibility? I think it's really important to go there. I think it's important when you're telling these stories where, you know, people are victimized and it's it's at such great cost to them. You know, we owe it to the survivors to tell the story as respectfully but as deeply and honestly as we can. So to bring a survivor's perspective into there and kind of know all of the stuff that goes on, it's it's very intense and, and I think it's important to go there. It's important to bring all of your experience there and and um, you know that that uh, you know these kinds of uh, people who are were affected in this particular story. I mean, it goes like many generations deep, you know, into this abuse and sex and exploitation. And and so you know, we we actually Mushka and I were talking about the history of the my character and how it had been done to me. You know, I had been trafficked, and and so I was coming back to doing this to other people just because i that's what I learned. And that's just, in my character's mind, that's how things should happen. And I think that that conditioning really does happen in the real world. And so it really affected my performance and my my role with this within this story greatly. So I think it's really important to go there. And do you think it's important for you to go there in your shows? And, and your, yeah. And, and your comedy? And yeah. Have, has that been hard? Yes, it's very hard because in... Comedy, if you're talking about, I think when the comedian is always supposed to be the hero, and when you're talking about being victimized, it becomes a, a difficult place for an audience to be because um, co comedy is supposed to be heroic in all of its, its incarnations. Ultimately, the comic has to rise above it. And so when you're talking about things that are dark and difficult, um, audiences kind of don't know what to do with their emotions. So it's a very treacherous place to be. It needs a lot of skill, which I think I'm getting there. I'm getting better at. But there's a lot there that needs to happen. And I think that comedy is a great place for it. In a show that's moving this fast, are you? How many takes do you do you do? Is do you get? Do you have a lot of room to do stuff, or, or is it? You, do you stick to the page? The words that are on. The I page? definitely stick to the page because I really have so much respect for the writing, and I, I, it's just so good. You don't want to mess around with that. But um, no, we didn't really need to do a lot of takes. I mean, everybody's so good. It, it, the other part of it is that this is such a well-oiled machine. There's very few shows that have like 21 years of doing it, you know, and, and so, and to do it in a city as chaotic and huge as New York and, and to have all of these guest stars come in and out, you know, there, there's this level of professionalism that's really unsurpassed. So you don't, uh, you don't seem to really need to do a lot of takes because of technical concerns or whatever. Right, There's right. Everybody's doing their job so well. Um, and uh, by the time we're sort of at that point where we're shooting and we're going in tight, the, 
there's like decisions that are made by every actor that are really sound that you want to stay with. So I, I felt like we didn't need a lot. Outside of SVU, do you prefer to do a lot of takes or do you? I prefer to do fewer than than more because um, to me, it's like you just sort of get it done. It's in stand-up comedy, like which is my main job. But you, you don't really get do-overs. You can only right. do it one time per show. So that, that that's sort of what the way that I love to work. If I could just do it in one, it's great. I've worked with Dennis Leary a lot, who's who moved from stand-up mm-hmm. to acting as well. And he was always talking about um, he thought acting was easy, you yeah. know, because because stand-up is. Yeah. But once he got really into acting, yeah. he realized that there there was so much there. That yeah. We, and it's kind of like it's like oh, this is a piece of cake, you know, uh-huh. like right, you smile for the camera almost. But mm-hmm. as he's grown, he's now thinking that stand-up, well, that's kind of easy because because mm-hmm. he's heavily into this thing. And do you yeah. have a similar? feeling about it? I agree. I agree. I think that stand-up, well, it's stand-up comedy can be um, difficult for people who haven't done it. But when you've done it for a while, then it becomes easy. And then acting is always hard because the more you go in and the more you kind of excavate what that character is doing and and you you put it all in there, there's so much more uh, that's being asked of you. So, and especially a show like this that really does ask you to go deeply because you're dealing with people who are doing some very dark stuff and um, you you know, you can't have just uh, one note there. You've got to give right. them the entire symphony. So it, it is very challenging. That's why I was asking about the takes because I thought you would need a lot to get, you know, to get to that symphony. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah. And outside of the show, like what's happening in Margaret Cho's, I know you have a podcast. If I you do. Give, if you give me any tips, I'll take it. <laughs> You're doing uh, great. Thank you. Um, uh, I love it. Uh, yes, I have a podcast and I do, um, I interview all sorts of different types of people. Um, but that that's really fun. I just started that. Again, I was at the very dawn of podcasting in 2012. And then you, but you quit for a while. And then I quit while. for a while and came back to it just this year. So it's a, it's a new journey again. And the industry around it has changed a lot. So that's great. But I'm also doing stand-up comedy on the road traveling everywhere and actually I was in between gigs uh, so I was able to just come to New York and do this so that it worked out really well. Well thank you Margaret Cho. Thank you. And Margaret Cho's dog Lucia, whose name Lucia. Lucia Caterina. Well, thanks for coming on the squad room. Thank you. Kathy Doby and Lisa Takayuchi Cullen are both journalists as well as two new SVU writers who co-wrote Counselor It's Chinatown. They stopped by the squad room to talk about this intense episode. We're here on the squad room with Lisa Takeuchi Cullen and Kathy Doby, and thank you for coming on. Hi, thank thanks you for having us. And we are digging into episode seven. Let's talk about the basic influence on the episode and how you guys came up with the idea. This is an idea that Julie Martin um, has been wanting to do for at least a year. There have been news articles about the Chinese women who work at massage parlors all over the country, um, but certainly in New York. And you will have seen these parlors, whether or not you notice them, wherever you go in New York and around the country. They're typically nondescript. They'll say spa. They'll have pretty pictures of pretty ladies with orchids maybe. Um, You may think nothing of them, but many of them are fronts for sexual services. And some of them are legit, but some of them are not. And we wondered about the lives of the women who work there. How do they get there? What are they doing there? Do they have any freedom to come and go? 
are they sex trafficked? Some of them are, not all of them, but certainly some of them are. And our real intent was to show the inner lives of these women. How does a person know what is a regular one and what is not? That's a great question. Sometimes you have to walk in. One of the signs, if there's an ATM outside or right in the lobby, that is probably not a legitimate uh, massage parlor. They, because wow. it's a cash-owned business. Um, I would hate to uh, diss the legitimate ones, but you can pretty much look at the ATM. When you walk inside, you'll see whether or not how well set up it is. You know, a lot of these girls work under such horrible conditions, and basically since it is just a sex parlor, they don't spend a lot of money on the decor. There's not a really nice lobby. You're going to go in and you're going to see, like, you know, uh, curtained-off cot areas. So I think it's pretty clear once you step in the door. You can't always see from outside, but once you step in. We heard from many men, both who we worked with and, and people we know in real life, who told us that they were at a massage parlor for an actual massage and were offered services. And some of the terminology that we used in our script came from men we spoke to who said, yeah, I was lying on a table and they asked me if I would like an executive service. No, executive release. Executive release. <laughs> executive release. Honeymoon experience, you know, those words. After Julie kind of comes to you, everybody's talking about this idea, how much research, how long does it take and what do you guys do? Well, some of it is a little bit what we would both do in journalism. Um, we certainly uh, read a lot of what was out there, both in about massage parlors, but also about uh, sex trafficking. But this was more like an indentured servitude story. So we did a lot of reading of that. I actually talked with somebody at uh, NYPD who told me that the rapes in uh, massage parlors are some of the most brutal that they see. So you kind of at some point realize you're also on the right track and a story has a kind of mission aspect to it. Once you hear something like that, you kind of want to make it right and you want the women's lives to become uh, clear to people, you know, so. Kathy and I are both journalists. Um, Kathy, you know, still works um, as a magazine journalist. She's written for all the top publications you can think of, the New York Times Magazine. And I've worked for many years at Time Magazine. So I think both of our approaches were um, to try to capture the truth. These are fictional stories that we're telling, but we wanted very much to portray the worlds as accurately as we could. And, you know, Kathy in particular has really based her career on um, focusing on stories about sexual crimes, assaults. Um, she's worked for many years uh, talking to sex workers. So she knows a lot of their plights. Um, I'm Japanese. I was born and raised in Asia. I worked as a reporter in Asia. And for me, it was extremely important to try to tell a story of immigrants in a way that was authentic and that didn't feel just salacious, um, you know, like a tourism story. Um, here we are going through Chinatown. This is our episode in Chinatown. Um, it is on the one hand, but on the other, uh, these are real people with real lives and we wanted to tell their real stories. Do you feel that when you tell a story about a different culture, different, is there a fear of getting it wrong? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, I mean, that's with you every single day that you're writing. I mean, you really are striving to get it right and not to have caricatures or stereotypes. And um, who was essential in this process was Warren, because um, people may not know that he spent some time in China 
and he speaks Mandarin Chinese. I found that out a few weeks ago. Yeah. So what was extremely helpful and sort of baffling throughout this process is he would just start speaking in Chinese um, (laughs) as we were trying to plot the script and as we were coming up with dialogue. So almost all of the dialogue, in fact, I would say in the end, all of it uh, actually came from Warren, um, the the Mandarin Chinese. And then, of course, we checked it and, you know, made sure he wanted to make sure that it wasn't dated or, you know, that the slang made sense. And our wonderful actors who came on set to work with us turned out to be essential in checking some of our dialogue and saying, oh, you know, we would say it this way. Um, and, uh, and then we tweaked to make sure we got it right. But this is something that has been a theme for Warren in season 21 is he he's hired the most diverse writer's room in the history of SVU. And his intent was to try to get a multiplicity of backgrounds and experiences and, and uh, people to populate these stories. Um, because when uh, you have that diversity um, among your writers, then you have the diversity in the stories. And outside of the diversity of the staff, is this also is there more, both of you and Dennis, is there more journalists than usual? I think so. Oh, there, there absolutely yeah. are. There are five, including Warren. Dennis Hamill, who is a yeah. longtime, uh, you know, columnist. Peter Bloner. Peter Bloner is also a journalist. And me um, and Warren. So that's five of us, yeah. Yeah. Nice. So just basically the structure of the story after this research is done. Like, in the teaser, what do you hope to achieve in our initial burst of the episode? So as you know, it's an action teaser. And um, uh, our director, Leslie Hope, joked that, you know, she was told, oh, yeah, come in, you know, direct an episode of Law and Order. It's just people sitting around and then they go to a courtroom and they sit around and they talk. And and then she had to come in and shoot this this action packed episode. Um, There's more than one action scene, but certainly in the teaser, uh, we see Carisi um, scaling a fire escape to save a young woman. And I want to say that Carisi can run very fast. (laughs) (laughs) I was amazed when we started shooting and he went tearing out of the van down the street. I'm like, that guy can run. Right. Um, Yeah, I think he really enjoyed doing a stunt, doing his part of the stunt. I have to say it was pretty surprising when I saw it because things are usually a little more calm. That day of shooting, um, you know, for Kathy and I, uh, this is our first season on SVU, and that was trial by fire to uh, be part of that shoot day. It was 90-plus degrees. We were shooting in Chinatown, which is already a notoriously difficult place to shoot, on this block that we had blocked off, I believe, for six hours Um, And that was it. The rest of it, we had to let cars through. And we had to shoot this incredibly complicated scenes. Our stunt director was there. We had stunt doubles there. We had um, cranes. We had uh, actual what we call looky-loos in our script, but actual spectators walking by and gawking and pointing and, you know, taking video and our wonderful PAs. We had extra PAs, Chinese-speaking PAs that we hired for that episode, trying to hold people at bay and explain to them, sorry, you can't walk this way while people were yelling at them. It was an in- insane day um, <laughs> to shoot that one scene. Yeah. And, and, and Chinatown did not want to stop for us, understandably. I mean, that is, is a very alive neighborhood. And they were like, you're blocking off the street. I have to go from here to there. So the PAs really had to do a lot of work there. They were not, Chinatown wasn't necessarily impressed with the fact that anybody was filming in their streets. They wanted to go about their business. But it was fun. So why did you want so much action in the teaser? 
this is uh, something, again, that, that Julian Warren had cooked up. Um, they had envisioned this particular opening um, for some time. And uh, they liked, I think, the idea of a raid. And, you know, we had brought in this new character, Sergeant Joe Chin from the Human Trafficking Task Force, to be part of this larger operation. And we uh, wanted to get our squad out on the streets and part of an active investigation where we, you know, take some people down. So again, the focus we wanted to make sure was on the people who own the spas and the Johns who frequent it and not on the young women who were forced to work there. Um, so we hope that that came across in the episode. I mean, you say it a few times, like, make sure you don't arrest them or don't, mm-hmm. you know, I think it was made very clear to me. So mission but accomplished. I, but I think one of the interesting things is, is when you look at, we were talking about the justice system, when you look at who actually paid the final price, right, the further up you are on the ladder, the less likely you are to actually have to pay any kind of price in the justice system. And the people that really actually got uh, hurt the most were the people at the very bottom of the ladder. And that would have been Lily and Charlie, which is kind of our, you know, I see this episode also as having two love stories nested inside of it. And that's May May and her brother and Lily and Charlie. And uh, I think that um, the people that had the least power ended up almost all, yeah, everyone except May May, like in the worst position. And the people up on top ended up getting away with it, which is how things often work in the justice system. Well, yeah, I'm, the scene with Lily um, I thought was quite harrowing. And uh, speaking with Jamie, I know she had a tough time with that scene. And I just maybe you want to expand on that, what you were thinking. The way we, um, we we talked endlessly about um, Lily's trajectory, because just like there's, uh, as Kathy said so beautifully, a, a love, two love scenes sort of nested within this story. Um, you know, Lily's arc is is nested within the the larger arc, and it's a tragedy. She is someone with great optimism, hiding this desperation that she's stuck in this life. And finally, she sees her way out. She sees that small crack of light at the end of the tunnel, and she thinks she's getting there. And then in the moment, outside the courtroom, she gets this text, and it's a photo of her mother in China with a gun to her head. And she realizes at that moment, oh, I'm never getting out. This is my life. I'm going to be servicing American men for no money, no escape for the rest of my life. Charlie's probably not getting out. I'm deluding myself. This is it for me. And she makes that choice. It's a harrowing choice, as you said. And we think the scene of Kat looking out the window and seeing her on the sidewalk um, will be jolting and upsetting to some people. But we felt a, um, if not a natural place for her to come to, then it, then it made sense to us that, that that might be the choice that a desperate person makes. What does a viewer gain by seeing something that indicates that there is no hope and no way out? Well, I would think, in one, they would get, uh, it would gain some compassion and understanding for situations that really do exist like that. You know, again and again, we see, um, if you look at the uh, undocumented immigrant community, for instance, where they're very easy prey for predators and they don't have any place to go and they're not comfortable going to the police and the police often don't handle it well anyway. And I think that, 
we did give the viewer a little bit of light at the end there, you know, Mei Mei and her brother. Uh, I think that was probably very necessary. You couldn't have ended that on Lily. But we had somebody that was able to climb out partially because of the good work of our detectives, uh, partially because of a family situation. I, I almost think that Mei Mei's story is a story of talk. Things are happening to tell somebody. You know, she had not told her brother. When she told her brother, she had an ally there. So um, there's just a couple of situations out there, but maybe it just teaches people to have compassion, not think that people always have choices, that there's always a way out. Do you worry that different storylines are happening? As you said, there's two love stories and there's, there's so much happening that you may confuse a viewer. That is something we considered, um, especially because we are telling a story in this episode of a culture that uh, maybe not all of our viewers are familiar with. There is most likely a Chinatown in every city across this country, but do people who are not Chinese know it beyond their favorite noodle shop? Um, maybe not. And so we were concerned um, on a sort of superficial level, are they going to you know, look at all these characters and feel like they know them, feel like they, they can differentiate one from the other? And to me, as an Asian who grew up in Asia and who's always seen Asians on television, because that's just called television in Japan, um, <laughs> it's difficult to feel like that that would be an issue. But um, but we have confidence that our stories and our storylines were so strong and um, so separate um, from each other that our viewers are smart. Our viewers are compassionate. And our viewers want to understand. They want to um, get to know our, our characters in a way that feels familiar. Um, this is the beauty of television, right? Because we're inviting these characters into our living rooms. It's different from being in a movie where you're sitting in a giant space. These people are in your living room with you. And we're hoping that our viewers, our you know, lovely, compassionate viewers, will come away feeling like they know these people a little bit more. Well, Mei Mei and Lily also are such, they are very much distinct characters. So it helped. They're both dealing with their situation in a different way. So I think that actually helps people follow the storylines along. You have one person who's very internalized and very uh, kind of, you know, sli slightly depressed and shy and kind of just trying to like plow through it, right? And then you have the other one who is putting on this wonderful, like happy, bubbly front and right. is going to joke her way through it and love her way through it. You know, I mean, they talk about how she's so sweet to all of us and she makes all of us laugh. And so I think once you flesh out a character enough, that allows people to follow plot lines because what they really are is following trajectories of characters. Right, right. I also think this is season 21 and I think our viewers are sophisticated and I think we do need to give them credit and believe that they are going to follow intelligent storylines and complicated storylines. I think that's where Warren pushes the envelope, is that he wants more complications. He wants more problems for our characters, more, more issues, more gray areas. And I think our, our viewers hunger for that. So let's talk about Margaret Cho. She was super fun in an interview, and I'm imagining she was super fun to work with on set. How did she come in to be in the episode? The character was conceived based on some of the news stories that we read about these women who 
run the parlors. And they are, in fact, called mama-san. Um, that is a Japanese term. It came out of World War II when the GIs were occupying Japan and the the madams of um, these operations were referred to as mama-sans. But that terminology still carries here in parlors run by other women of other cultures. And so we envisioned a really tough-as-nails character. Someone who Olivia Benson could go head-to-head with and would, at first, we would feel like, oh, she might have met her match in this woman. Like Olivia Benson, she is really good at her job. She's been doing it for 30 years. Um, No one's going to mess with her. Like Olivia Benson, um, she's a mother, and she has this ferocious protectiveness to her that we wanted to drive her as well. So in her uh, two big scenes with Benson, um, the two of them really go at it, and we loved seeing that. I think my favorite, um, I don't know about you, was the Mahjong scene. Mahjong scene Um, I love. And the place that our amazing location scouts found um, is an actual senior center in Chinatown, and they play mahjong there. So we used their, we didn't really change a thing in their in their space, and we had our terrific background actors come in, and they were actually playing mahjong in the background. Um, and we thought, oh, this is a great place where Benson could come, and she's out of her element, and yet she's going to tell Mama-san what she's got, and she's going to, in the end, um, win. So when we were cast um, I had a notion that maybe Margaret Cho would be great. And Margaret Cho, of course, is Korean-American and not Chinese-American. And we were very careful, again, in our efforts toward authenticity to cast Chinese-American actors or Chinese actors even for these roles. And so we rewrote the role a little bit for her to be Korean-Chinese. And there are, you know, the Chinese diaspora is so huge that they cover every every nation on every continent. And when she accepted, um, we were over the moon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely wonderful. It was two mama bears yeah. placed off against each other. It was fantastic. She's, yeah, she's yeah. great. And they both loved it. You could see that yeah. bo- both of the actors loved acting with each other. And this is uh, interesting because in Peter Blauner's um, episode one, he talked about uh, trying to find a worthy adversary for Mariska. And yes. here you are talking about this again. And yes. those scenes, they really jump off the screen. They're just because you got to... Two heavy hitters going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very exciting for us to write for and we think for our viewers to watch. Mariska brings a real fire to her scenes. Um, I'm sure, you know, audience members can see it on screen too, but when you're in the presence of it, it really kind of, you know, it sends, you know, shivers down your spine to watch her sort of, you know, do her her work and to, to bring her craft. Um, but watching her with Margaret show, it's a really um, special treat to see these guest actors come in and, and bring out something um, in our, our wonderful leads. Um, but Margaret show was such a pro. Wasn't Absolutely. She? She just every just single, it. every single take she killed. Yeah. She would sit down and there was never, it was like, okay, we'll do take one, two, three, four, five. Every single one, she was as good as the one yeah. before. We've heard from the veterans that guest actors take these roles to show a different side of themselves, um, often because they love the show um, and and because they want to show the world that they can do something different. And we feel that Margaret Cho did just that. She is beloved as a comedian um, and well, well known as a, as a comic actress, uh, but you know, she kills in these dramatic roles. She can flip it and she'll try different things. Um, she knows her character and her lines cold. 
she was just a joy to work with. Mm -hmm. This 21 letters for each title, you guys are going to make it? <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. So 24 episodes? Yes. How many are you doing? 22 yes. this year? Oh, no no question. Now everybody just counts 21 in their head. Somebody says something interesting yeah. in a sentence, and everybody's like, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> Some people <laughs> like Julie. Julie knows right away. Yeah, Julie 21 letters. Yeah. It's like, oh, where are you counting you know, that? She's like a robot. Yeah, you know? it's amazing. Yeah. 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 Interesting <laughs> skill. Yeah. No, it's lots of fun, though. Sometimes we have to cheat and add a the or an uh. We have the perfect <laughs> title, and we're like, 20 letters. You know, so, uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kathy and Lisa, thank you so much for coming thank on the Squadron thank today. <laughs> That's a wrap for the Squadron. Next week, Damore Barnes, Chief Garland, comes in and hangs out with us. We are hearing from you all the time. We want to hear more, more, more. Please connect with us. We love hearing from you. Follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and Wolf Entertainment. Follow us on Twitter at NBCSVU and Wolf N. As always, The Squad Room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. We'll see you next week. <laughs>